So, uh, very glad to see you all here, um, and welcome to uh, tonight's lecture in the uh, Ralph Miliband uh, public lecture series, which this, this year is broadly around the theme of uh, generations. Uh, I'm Anne Phillips from the Government Department, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm chairing uh, the meeting tonight. Um, and uh, the topic uh, for tonight's panel is uh, Generations of Feminists. Um, we, I mean, we hear a lot about the idea of uh, generations of feminists, about a new generation of feminists, uh, an older generation of feminists. Um, yeah, and, you know, as uh, one of the older set, uh, I often worry about the way in which the kind of the notion of generation rather kind of homogenizes um, uh, many, you know, contested positions within each particular uh, generational group. Uh, but also the way it can uh, suggest uh, much sort of sharper differences between generations. Uh, that said, there are, of course, changes from one period to another. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to tonight's discussion. And I'm uh, delighted to welcome our panel. Uh, Avta Bra is uh, Professor Emerita at uh, Birkbeck, where she's worked since the mid-1980s. Um, and among her many influential publications is Cartographies of Diaspora, Contesting Identities, which brought together analyses of gender, uh, gender, race, class, and in fact generation was one of the uh, important aspects of that, uh, to map the, um, the emergence of the notion of Asian in post-war uh, British political discourse. And her, her most recent publication is a further contribution to thinking about diaspora in the Bloomsbury Handbook of, of Feminist Theory. But after has always been an activist uh, as well as an academic. She was one of the founding members of the campaign group uh, South Hall Black Sisters, and uh, has, is a long-standing, long-serving member of the Feminist Review Collective. So very, very pleased to have you here after. Uh, Claire Hemmings, who uh, is known to many of you, is a Professor of Feminist Theory and Director of the LSE Gender Institute, and she too has been a, a long-standing member of the Feminist Review Collective, um, and has written a number of works that are particularly pertinent to our topic tonight, um, for example, Why Stories Matter, um, which explores the kind of stories that feminists tell about themselves and the often misleading division into waves and generations. Um, and more recently, her book, Considering Emma Goldman, um, which, among other things, explores the, um, the kind of the ways uh, feminists uh, often claim Goldman for feminist purposes, while repudiating or ignoring aspects of her thought that they don't feel so comfortable with. Now, uh, our third speaker was going to be uh, Imiabong Umoran, but very unfortunately, she's not able to be with us tonight. She's gone down to one of those terrible colds that has afflicted many people over the, uh, over the winter, uh, and she's lost her voice, so she just, just couldn't contribute. But we've been extraordinarily lucky because we have two people Fortunately, some representatives of the younger generation <laughs> who have uh, agreed to step in at very short notice. Um, uh, Niharika Pandit and uh, uh, Priya uh, Raghavan um, who um, uh, are going to step in with their reflections on feminism. So uh, Niharika is uh, a PhD candidate in the Department of Gender Studies, so at LSE, and her, her research examines 
how the uh, narratives of home are complicated by gendered experiences of militarization with particular reference to Kashmir. And Priya is also a PhD candidate in the Department of Gender Studies uh, and re researches constructions of victimhood and agency in discourses of sexual violence in India. So particularly grateful to you two for doing this at such short notice. Um, so um, uh, can you, can, before we start, can I just ask you to just join me in uh, welcoming our, our panel? I should say something about the structure. Uh, uh, basically, each of the um, four speakers uh, is going to speak in turn um, for, um, you know, 10, 10 to 12 minutes. Um, uh, Priya and uh, uh, Niarika just for about five minutes each. Um, uh, then have a bit of a, a discussion between the panelists uh, and then uh, throw it open to questions uh, from, from you. So, over to you, Aftar. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Is that, can you hear me? No. no. Okay. <laughs> Is it better now? Yeah, that's great. Okay, so I'm delighted to be here, actually. Uh, uh, and uh, to be with uh, fellow travelers politically and uh, academically and uh, in many other ways. It's still not, I don't... Maybe closer to you, maybe? Perhaps better? Oh. <clears throat> yeah? Yeah? Still not no, it's adjusted. not. I don't know why. It's not... Uh... Lean into it. Hello? No, it, it, I think... It's working, is it? Yeah, yeah okay, I'll, I'll speak into it, right? All right. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to start with talking about, not talking about, but actually mentioning that in his seminal essay of 1927, titled The Problem of Generations, because we're talking about generations, Karl Mannheim attempted to address the question of how age groups developed a common consciousness and began to act as a coherent historical force. He identified two features of the generation phenomenon, namely one, a generation position in which people are located merely by accident of birth, two, the generation as actuality involving participation in a common content, context and destiny. He pointed to the emergence of distinct generation units within this community of people. Thus, within any generation, there can exist a number of differentiated, even antagonistic generation units, so that a single generation unit may not be used as a prototype of the whole generation. Clearly, this perspective pointed to the notion that generation is a heterogeneous category. Yet, this point was lost in many commentaries and analyses in the early post-World War II period when frequently youth came to be constructed as a homogeneous category. The inheritor of post-war affluence, a generation in conflict with society and at the vanguard of social change. Such views reached their zenith with the debates that emerged in the late 1960s of the so-called counterculture. The activities of this predominantly middle-class youth, such as the hippies, were likely to be taken to stand for all young people. Critics of this position, as for instance the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies at Birmingham University, located youth culture within the class structure of British society 
and produce some influential studies of working class youth cultures. Yet, despite their compelling insights, these studies too were subject to a number of limitations. For example, they were likely to foreground the non-conformist or so-called deviant cultures rather than the conventional. They were more inclined to emphasize conflict rather than taking intergenerational continuity into account. They tended to pay hardly any attention to adult members of a generation. And above all, like much of the literature of the period, neglected the gender dimension in mainly carrying out research on boys. But it is worth bearing in mind that women researchers at the Center for Contemporary Culture Studies did highlight the importance of gender in a book titled Women Take Issue. The title itself is telling. Similarly, the center carried out a highly important study called Policing the Crisis, which among other things examined the interplay of race in the working of British social formation. But overall, questions of race and ethnicity, and indeed disability and sexuality, homonormativity, were given very limited attention in the literature of the period on generations. Overall, a distinction coming out of these early studies, which is why I'm really mentioning them, is that I found particularly useful was the a distinction between age group and generation. For instance, Bankston and Black, two writers, in 1973, differentiated between cohort and lineage relationships within the age system. They suggest that intergenerational relationships should be viewed from two perspectives of time and social structure. From a macro level involving analysis of generations as large age-based aggregates or cohorts and examining cultural continuity and change within the context of historical time, and from a micro level in which generations were represented by lineage members and examining interpersonal interaction within the context of individual developmental time. The lineage relationship is understood not merely biologically but also socially, with socialization forming the core of this relationship. At the former level, the relationship is horizontal, involving age-based aggregates, whereas at the latter level, it is vertical, involving members of different age groups linked by kinship as well as socialization relationships. The two levels are not considered mutually exclusive, but interrelated. The generation level is properly constituted when the basis of difference or conflict are carried forward by a youth group into their occupants of adult status. So what bearing does this distinction between generation and age group have upon thinking about feminism? In Western feminist discourses, there has been a tendency to think about different phases of feminist development through the concept of waves, which most of you will know about. As is well known, commentators generally speak in terms of three waves of feminist activism and theory, although there is also now reference to a fourth wave. First wave feminism was a period of activity and thought that occurred during the 19th and early 20th century. It focused on legal issues, primarily on gaining the right to vote around which suffragists campaigned and mobilized. In the USA, the early feminist developments were connected with the abolitionist movement. 
Sojourner Truth's rousing speech, Ain't I a Woman, which you, I hope you have come across, pointed to the embeddedness, embeddedness of issues of racialized exclusion at the heart of the development of feminist debates and concerns from early times. Second way feminism designation is given to feminist activism and scholarship that emerged in the 1960s and is thought to have lasted until the 1980s and early 1990s, though the chronology is understood to be slightly different in Britain. Whilst first waves feminists concentrated on legal aspects such as the vote and property rights, the second wave addressed a wider range of issues such as those related to women's position in the labor market, issues about homonormativity and sexuality, violence against women including rape within intimate relationships, pornography and reproductive rights including sterilization which had a disproportionate bearing on abuse of black and other minorities, minoritized groups of women. There were contentious debates during this period which focused on the way in which contributions of women of color, working class women and LGBT women were ignored. In feminist literature, the theory and practice of second wave feminism were often classified along three categories, which you will remember probably some of you, namely liberal, radical and socialist feminism. The third wave feminism is said to have developed in the 1990s and is assumed to have been centered around the activities of those born in the 1960s and 1970s, people who grew up within a media-saturated milieu grounded in the information revolution. Their politics were marked by the heritage of feminist activism of the first and second wave, although this aspect was sometimes disavowed. They were surrounded by narratives of feminist success and achievement, yet there were still present barriers of racism, sexism, homophobia, and inequalities of class and disability. Postmodernism and post-structuralism were making their make mark in the academy and society, and new analytical approaches were coming to the fore, and this impacted on feminist, the feminist theorizing. Questions of beauty, sexuality, and femininity were reappraised. Questions of transgender came to the fore and are currently at the forefront of feminist politics. And the concept of intersectionality, developed by black feminists, is recognized as a key concept of third wave feminism. Yet, although the terminology of intersectionality gained currency in the 1990s, the politics of intersectionality have been part of feminism since the second wave. Indeed, one of the topics that highlighted this was the debate figured between what were then termed black feminism and white feminism. And we can discuss in, 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 in the meeting later on whether those labels are you know, still sort of pertinent. Questions of racism and homonormativity were raised by black women and women of color and LGBT women from the beginning of, beginning of second wave feminism, although there was contention about them. Third wave modality of feminism has also developed within a context of neoliberalism and strands of it are strongly influenced by it. Indeed, some commentators describe third wave feminism as a neoliberal brand of feminism but it is also associated with the more explicit agenda of social justice. There is some talk about a fourth wave portraying it as a post 9-11 response to global inequalities. Whilst the global issue following the attack on Twin Towers in New York in 2011 
and the regimes of securitization unleashed in its aftermath remain critically important. The question of global inequality has been at the heart of transnational feminism, which has thrived for many decades. It would seem to me that there is some mileage in considering the link between the concept of wave and generation, but they cannot be understood to replace each other, although they may be seen to displace each other somewhat. It isn't as if the issues foregrounded by the first or second wave are no longer relevant to current feminism, for they are. I would suggest that some of the differences assumed to characterize different waves are best understood as age group differences rather than generational. Only the more enduring and lasting changes within the context of historical time could possibly be described as generational. The wave metaphor is in any case considered problematic within feminist scholarship. It is argued that the idea of wave represents a somewhat teleological approach that divides feminist thought into a series of discrete and progressive stages of evolution. Others regard it as setting up false divisions and suggesting periods of inactivity that conceal continuity. As an example of a generational change, we may regard the emergence of online technologies and their impact as a more enduring shift, which has helped create virtual forums, introducing feminist debate and campaigns to a wider audience. Overall, I believe that what matters most are the political positions we take up, rather than the age groups to which we belong. We may then belong to the same political generation, despite our membership of a different age group. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Haftar. So, through all of my work over the last 20 years, I realized as I was <laughs> preparing for this talk, I've been con concerned, indeed preoccupied, um, with the institutionalization um, and politics as well as historiography of feminist thinking. And that in part, of course, reflects my own generational position. A participant in UK and international women's studies, as, it, uh, as the field um, was called in the UK for quite some time, in 1993, uh, and in fact, at that point, gender studies would have been considered an absurd name for the field to the point that one wouldn't have even considered it for a second. It would have been uh, a pure depoliticization. I uh, had a PhD in the same and 20 years then of employment in the field as well as participation in its extra features. And I put extra in inverted commas. <laughs> Conferences, arguments, lives and deaths, dinners, conversations, attachments, despairs, bewilderments, aggressions. I've benefited very directly then from what we might characterize as past generations of feminism and feminists in both practical and epistemological terms. I can only think and feel as a feminist now because of other people's labor, time, writing, love and anger successes and failures. And I have a never-ending responsibility to others, past, present and future, that references my certainty that I can never do justice to that labor, time, love and anger, let alone those successes and failures. 
Trans-historical threads of connection enable me to imagine myself more than I am as a feminist then. And thinking about feminism as a legacy reminds me of what it minimally has always entailed. An embodied commitment to prodding, pushing, poking holes in and resisting the miserable resilience of gendered, sexual and racialized norms and power relations we inhabit every day. And succeeding, failing and struggling, but never on your own. Generation is, of course, a temporal term that describes flows of displacement. One generation, the convention goes, gives rise to and is ultimately succeeded by another. It is often used to describe change or the unpleasant lack of it, generational unemployment, for example, and inevitability too. It is natural for one to cease and another to become. It is also a spatial term, and one that refers to family and one's location within a particular generation, X, for example. It assumes coherence within rather than across generations at heart and often foregrounds antagonism or generosity across mutually exclusive positions. And I'm echoing, I guess, what you were saying there, Avatar, uh, in part. Uh, feminist understanding of generations is no exception. We talk about waves and understand them as discrete. We describe generations as passing on knowledge to successive inheritors as a kind of planned obsolescence. Generation assumes displacement in ways that reproduce the heteronormativity of this temporal framing. Feminist mothers and daughters who vie for attention or recognize each other's difference but remain incommensurable at heart. There may be some truth to these dynamics at times, that's for sure, but there's a naturalization here that assumes this as inevitable. It lacks a sense of the character of cooperation within an anti-ageist feminist frame that seeks not to mirror the sense of a limited period of relevance for older or younger subjects. And it fails to recognize shared desires across place and time that might be more powerful than the teleological and psychic imperative to kill the mother. Let's hope. <laughs> generation assumes a distinct set of political and theoretical progressions where the past is clearly different from the present and where different eras are characterized by distinct ways of thinking, feeling, and acting. There may well be specific emphasized features in different times and places, of course, but when these become a kind of shorthand or even fetish, the loss of range limits our historical legacy rather than preserving it. First wave feminism is remembered then for a focus on the vote. Second wave for labor and sexuality, perhaps. Third wave, intersectionality or even depoliticization, depending on where you're located. Fourth, if there is such a thing, for critiques of gender and austerity and transnational anti-racism. And we can tell these stories positively or with regret, of course. We can even talk to the lessons learned the problem of nationalism in suffrage, the racism or transphobia of radical or socialist feminism, the occlusion of violence and material harm by queer celebration uh, and linguistic turn, for example. 
But what we lose in these accounts, I want to say, is a sense of all these questions being asked at each point, though with different emphasis. I want to be able to talk about a history of struggle over meaning and possibility rather than a sequential set of shifts that don't do justice to the richness of debate and action that characterizes feminism. So a generational story that sees the feminist present as more attentive to non-heterosexual desire or issues of racism than the feminist past eliminates those very struggles that it might seek to be making visible in the present, paradoxically heterosexualizing and whitening the past in the process. That's not to say that there aren't moments of profound intensity around particular issues at particular times that we need to pay attention to. Social movements and theories coalesce around particular concerns in ways that don't simply mirror the past. We might take the question of feminist response to sexual violence that has a particular intensity contemporarily, for example, in uh, international and transnational policy, law, social movements, theorizations of intimacy, and epistemologies of oppression. But while there are new shapes to these questions, there are serious difficulties that arise in our capacities to politically engage if this is characterized as the concern of a new generation. It shapes the past as somehow failing to address such issues or sees the past in its own image where it does, linking often uh, a sexual violence movement to the anti-porn movement rather than to the deeply difficult work of Southall Black Sisters, for example, uh, or seeing sexual violence as separate from, for example, racial violence in detention. So too, looking forward, it struggles to take forward the history of sexual freedom that has tended to attend that attention to sexual violence at each point in time, focusing more on the ongoing conditions of sexual oppression faced by women, however narrowly or expansively conceived, rather than the coextensive labor to generate other desiring practices and communities that characterizes concern with sexual violence at different points in time. How, for example, could one tell the story of the U.S. sex wars without attention to the emergence of queer communities and responses to HIV-AIDS? And these generational stories also produce an eye-rolling in those of us who participated in earlier versions of these struggles, cross perhaps at having to deal with them again when we thought the battles were already won and the mantle properly passed but instantiating their truth through those eye rolls as much as we imagine ourselves outside of or commentators upon history, a kind of boredom that indicates we thought that something could ever be done with. Mightn't we characterize feminist generation in its other meaning, though, as rooted in ongoing struggles and connections as part of how we imagine the future? Instead of stale projection on others' past, present, and future when they don't align with the current trend or we imagine them to think and feel things they might not, can we think spatially in productive, generative ways? I think we, I think we can. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Let me uh, give you one example of the kind of connectivity that I think of as generative, respectful, but engaged with rather than denying of power and difference within feminism. 
Avtar Bra's Scent of Memory is a must-read for all feminist theorists and activists. So any of you who haven't read it need to do that as soon as you leave. Its central character, Jean, was a white Southall dweller who took her own life, leaving only a note about changes in Southall that her son publishes after her death. Avtar has a passion for knowing Jean, who, importantly, she knows will remain unknowable, precisely because she is constructed as her own opposite in terms of the categories we are given to think ourselves through, white-slash-Asian, gendered-generational. In refusing to insist that we already know who Jean was, racist, stuck in her ways, destroyed by discourse or difference, Avtar also refuses the endless repetitions of violence between subjects and knowledges. In demonstrating that we none of us know the other, Avtar interrupts generational and affective certainty in ways that I have found profoundly moving. Scent was originally published in 1999 in Feminist Review, a socialist feminist journal run by a collective since 1979. Avtar has been on that collective since the 1980s, sticking it out through its many and various arguments over race, sexuality, and the nature of the political that have characterized almost every issue. The collective decided to honor the history and processes of the journal, and of course Avtar, by publishing a special 100th issue entitled Recalling the Scent of Memory, drawing on papers given at a conference at her retirement, and the contributions of collective members. These effective ties allowed us to celebrate Avtar's work in ways we often forget to do for one another, whether we talk about generation or not. The contributors inhabit different theoretical and disciplinary traditions, are different ages, and have different political attachments and overlapping investments that cut across age and generation. And importantly, they all engage with the question of generation in affective as well as political and theoretical or empirical terms. To give you a sense of what I mean, Suki Ali's piece uses affect to think through what cannot be said or exchanged, but lingers as a way of accessing cultural memory, collective feeling, buried histories, and bruises that are also part of knowledge. Lynn Thomas revisits her own childhood in terms of working-class whiteness and the fragments of unknown possibilities that surface, as well as the blunt difficulties of refusing to inhabit whiteness defined through racialization of others. And Joan Animado and Lale Halili compose their feelings through poetry as inaugurating and inaugurated by history, as placing people in competing narratives but shared space within feminism. But lest I over-glamorize, these aspects of affective solidarity that I want to prioritize over generation always threaten to disperse, of course. At the party afterwards, to celebrate the issue, questions of race and representation became tethered to difference and authenticity despite the collective's best efforts to think and engage otherwise. And previous members of the collective expressed rage at not being included uh, in the issue or the party to the extent they felt they deserved. You remember that, right? Thus, the effective life of this issue remains restless. 
Here, then, is an engagement with generation in this special issue. In terms of what resonant, uh, uh, with generation, in terms of what resonances it allows, what feelings it produces, what possibilities it inaugurates, and what presencing, to use Gail Lewis's recent term, it enables. That engagement emphasizes the space of negotiation over the time of inheritance, the gift over an embattled legacy, and the lingering ghosts over resolution of differences. If this is generational thinking, then I am all for it. But it needs this level of care to do this level of work. And ironically, perhaps, it may require working across generations uh, and ages and collective practice to bring out generations' real material, methodological, and effective capacities. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Um, being part of this panel with these brilliant feminist stalwarts is a particularly vivid reminder of the heft of feminist, feminist legacy um, and the care and responsibility with which it must be discussed. Um, so over the next few minutes, I want to start a conversation around the representational possibilities and limitations of thinking about generations of feminism in the post-colonial condition more specifically in the context of India as a colonized and colonizing state. As Claire has already laid out so brilliantly, thinking generationally entails certain temporal and spatial attachments or assumptions that inevitably precipitate sets of investments and exclusions. Generational accounts operate within a familial, territorially circumscribed imaginary, which solicits an investiture in certain racialized and caste-imbued national fantasies that many of us seek to resist. Within this context, a generational imagination is no longer purely about the tensions between the polarized or caricatured representations of the ungrateful entitled, entitled daughters of feminism and their compromised, co-opted, or capitulating foremothers, but opens up larger questions around inclusion within this imagined family or community whose generations we are tracking. Thus, producing a generational account of Indian feminisms becomes an even more thorny project, given the intricate politics of naming and claiming, disavowal and refusal that haunt the construction of both Indian and feminism within the post-colonial subcontinent. In most hegemonic characterizations, Indian feminism is represented as having developed in a set of temporal waves, starting from the anti-imperial and reform movements of the 19th century. This is then seen to be followed by phases of post-colonial feminist mobilization and struggle and the inception of the autonomous women's movement in the 1970s and 80s, when feminist concerns and collectives found articulation outside of formal political, political parties and affiliations to them. With economic liberalization in the 90s came another stage in feminist formation, with the NGOization of many of the movements that had begun during the autonomous phase and the inauguration of what Nivedita Menon calls the 9 to 5 or career feminist. Finally, and most recently, the feminist movement operates within a neoliberalized, professionalized, and increasingly digitized reality, adapting its agendas, methods, and articulations accordingly. Now, much of this, obviously, abridged and reductive account, um, as might already be evident, enlists a certain orientation around the nation state, 
a centering of the production and contestation around the Indian within Indian feminisms. What are the representational limits of such an orientation, particularly within the context of a neo-imperial state? With the military occupation of Kashmir and vast swaths of the Northeast governed under the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, the very imagination of the Indian polity is under contestation with important consequences for any discussion of generations of Indian feminism. As Dr. Madhok discusses in her work on women's mobilizations within Indian states of exception, important feminist struggles whose critique takes aim at the very legitimacy of the nation-state and its racialized, caste-hierarchized imagination have been pushed out of this frame. In producing a generational account, um, sorry, a generational account of Indian feminisms, there is a risk of ignoring those multiple categories of the subaltern whose realities and interests are sidelined, if not maligned, in the very production of the fantasy of India. In post-colonial India's proliferating zones of indistinction, various feminist struggles remain unintelligible as they escape legibility in the lens of the implicit Indian family whose generational history we are interested in capturing. The very category feminism itself also precipitates various sites and forms of antagonism in the post-colonial context. During the cementing of the autonomous phase of the Indian feminist movement, much of what was heralded as feminist victories came in the form of legislative reform, appeals to the state to expand its authority and in particular its carceral function in the aid of women. Various Dalit, Bahujan and Adivasi women long engaged in a far more adversarial relationship with the state and its military and carceral apparatus, vocally and vociferously disavowed associations with such a political project, marking a set of important and enduring tensions around what is done in the name of feminism and who can and does claim this title. These disquiets, however, were then co-opted by various right-wing Hindu fundamentalist groups who were quick to hijack the conversation and delegitimize feminism per se as a Western import, with no place or relevance in the Indian context. This particular originary discourse of feminism as alien to our culture had lasting purchase and continues to infiltrate conversations around and inform resistance to struggles to secure rights and freedoms for women in India. What is clear then is that in order to resist this originary narrative of feminism as Western or a neo-imperial imposition, we must be able to produce compelling histories of the long and enduring legacy of feminist struggle and claim-making within the subcontinent. We cannot afford to discard an investment in being able to produce an archive and tell stories of these struggles, contentious, uh, struggles and contentious, contentions, multiple and messy as they are. We must, however, remain vigilant to how particular ways of telling these stories, including possibly generationally, occlude more than they illuminate. We need to resist the Western import originary narrative without precipitating new epistemic erasures or resorting to what Dr. Madho calls Orientalist representations, crude indigenisms, or dangerous neonativisms. And to do this, we must ask constant penetrating questions in ways our brilliant feminist foremothers have taught us around how feminist archives and memories are produced, curated, circulated, and legitimated through our work. Thank you.
thank you priya for this genealogy of indian feminism and the contestations within of late the idea of generation within the feminist movement in india came to the forefront following publishing of the list of sexual harassment accused in academia also known as losha the list which was first published in 2017 on social media by dalit student raya sarkar drew immediate attention and a number of mixed responses by feminist writers scholars and activists while many academics re resisted the quote unquote naming and shaming that the list evoked and that it did not follow a due process legal or otherwise to seek recourse to justice many others underlined that these very propensities created layers of exclusion further marginalizing the narratives that were already on the margins especially dalit feminists while the list has been discussed and debated at length arguably this moment was pivotal to the ongoing me too movement in india and importantly the list also opened up discussions and paradoxes around generation within indian feminism it was noted that while those who opposed the list recognized the systematic oppressions based on gender class and caste continue to play out in university spaces yet they charged that the list and sarkar had i quote single-handedly destroyed all trust within feminist politics this response by eminent scholars and activists was viewed by many other feminists as dis dismissive and problematic for it erased the complexities of caste class and other marginalizations which are often inadequately addressed within the indian feminist space it was especially the anti caste feminist activists who challenged the assumption of absence of dissonance and difference within the movement as well as its presentation as a homogenous unified space the question that subsequently emerged was this rift created or did it, did it always exist within what we know as indian feminism the discussion around the list which was initially registered as a generational divide and framed so also within the media discourses was soon complicated and rightly so as srilal roy has argued seeing the list as well as this particular moment within the feminist community only through a generational divide between older and younger feminists forecloses possibilities of solidarity while also erasing the social complexities that have always existed within many narratives thereon focused on the heterogeneity of response within older as well as younger feminists while underlining the need to disavow the age and generation only division as it erased the complex social locations that feminists occupy within the movement in thinking thinking about such other such omissions i'm also reminded of a recent protest in delhi following the rape and killing of a young girl in kathua of militarized jammu and kashmir where a section of mainstream activist narrative completely elided the conditions of militarization which render certain populations highly vulnerable and precarious conditions of living and survival it is then imperative to ask when a rift within feminism is only seen in terms of generations which different material conditions of survival does it erase i follow hemings in thinking through generations certainly in spatial temporal terms not only to emphasize difference but to also see generation as generative where it lays emphasis on the problematics that currently exist and have existed for feminist activism in india thinking only temporally in terms of a purely progress narrative presents an analysis which leads to a series of pertinent questions whose progress narrative whose progress does it address what complexities does it homogenize who are erased from those narratives and finally who tells those narratives 
Thus, I see this moment within Indian feminism as not simply a generational issue, a divide between the old and the young feminists, but precisely, um, but the precise potential of this moment to open up generative possibilities of coming together, of building solidarities, not through erasure of differences, of different marginalizations, but a progression through and with these complexities. This requires not the dismissal of younger feminists with many of those extremely important Dalit and Bahujan voices, but paying an even greater attention to power differences which have always existed within. And finally, I am reminded of what Professor Kimberly Crenshaw recently said. It is only our particularities, our specificities, that can create conditions of feminist possibilities. Thank you. So, um, thank you all very much. And before opening this up to kind of question and answer, I mean, I want to give you all a chance to say anything you want to say about each other's contributions. But can I also just, just ask one question? Because it seems to me that you're all in, I mean, you're saying different things, but you're all in some ways uh, united around wanting to, uh, to challenge uh, uh, an overly strong sense of distinctions between generations and challenge a kind of narrative of progress, as, uh, as you put it. Um, but doesn't the kind of shifts in the background matter? I mean, if you think by parallel of the ways in which, uh, the ways in which socialist thinking has been kind of reframed and reshaped against the background of neoliberalism mm. and the way it's constrained the possibilities of what one can and can't think, one would expect similar kinds of things to happen. Within, uh, within feminism, whatever's going on in the background, you know, is going to have an impact. I mean, I think it would be more of a generational change than an age cohort change, to use your distinction after. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, but isn't, aren't, aren't there important changes that we need to be uh, able to think about, as well as challenging uh, the uh, overemphasis on uh, a generational story? You can speak in whatever order you like. <laughs> or you can start. Okay. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think yeah. that we do need to take into account, um, you know, the point you're making. Uh, I think it's a question of uh, what I ended with, which is really about the kind of politics of the uh, situation in which we find ourselves rather than gener generation is not totally unimportant. I'm not saying generation doesn't matter at all. Obviously, uh, our experiences over certain cohorts, you know, do have a bearing on the specificity that we were talking about that is produced. So if, if you're talking about taking into account specificities of experience, then generation is one factor mm. which obviously constructs those specificities. So I think that's very important. Uh, but I think uh, what we were really saying is that it's the overemphasis on, on generation that I think we're taking issue with. And, uh, and certainly the changes that happen uh, do have, uh, one of the effects is that certain th other things get um, foreclosed. Mm -hmm. And so you're right that uh, a lot of the changes uh, that, are, that have been taking place in, in relation to, for instance, the, um, uh, the neoliberal uh, kinds of developments uh, do have place at least an obstacle in terms of doing this kind of socialist 
politics that many of us were involved in um, in the 70s and 80s. So I partly agree with you, but I, I just I think it's the um, overemphasis on generation that probably uh, I would want to take issue with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, and it's such a pleasure to listen. Uh, to the echoes across the different uh, papers. Um, I was struck by the same thing, Anne, which is, you know, that in a panel on generation, we're all uh, talking about its limits. Um, and I think, I think that's for good reason. I think, I mean, I agree with you, and I've been trying to find a, a kind of language for talking about particular clusters of... Um, preoccupation or uh, particular kinds of socioeconomic shifts and their impact on, you know, a whole variety of different political, social thinking and, and uh, action. And I suppose at the moment, I, I, you know, I sort of, I think that, the, that I'm using the word intensity a lot more than I necessarily want to. <laughs> I don't really know what it means. Um, but but I suppose the resistance to generation isn't an anti-historical move, right? It's not intended to be a move that somehow uh, doesn't think about the importance of the past. In fact, quite the contrary, right? So if I'm thinking here about, say, a contemporary um, uh, uh, intensity around the links between nationalism, populism, and anti-gender feeling, right, which is happening globally, I think that thinking about that as, as, as purely in generational terms erases the history of how consistently that's been part of nationalist um, agendas over the, at least the last 200 years um, and the ways in which someone like my, you know, um, my muse, Emma Goldman, was talking precisely about the impact of that on, on um, aggression and violence against uh, women in, you know, the 1900s. And so it's less a question of not being attentive to history, but in fact quite the opposite, that speaking in generational terms, when that means ignoring the past, um, that that actually kind of strangely generates a kind of preoccupation with um, newness or, or distinctness. And I think I, I was um, trying to point a little bit to the ways in which I think some of the strands of, of thinking about sexual violence tend to do that. They don't tend to historicize the ways in which... Um, uh, feminist social movements have been concerned um, concerned with it. So it's it's more a question of trying to think through the question of of how we highlight the importance of history rather than how we demonise it. Mm -hmm. I was struck also by your. I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more about what you, the distinction you indicated after around age and generation, because I think that's quite helpful. Um, Though also be good to hear from people, but <laughs> that was something that yeah. Okay. Thank you, not very much to add, but um, to echo um, a lot of what uh, Claire and Aftar said around how the concern is more with these sort of hegemonic productions um, that generational narratives um, have and the erasures in terms of an attentiveness to history that they produce. So, for example. In the Indian context, while the Indian feminist wave of the 70s and 80s was this notion of the autonomous feminist movement and the proliferation of legislation, 
perhaps what we could take away most usefully at this moment was from the feminist response to the emergency at that time, um, when we have the right now a, 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 an emerging authoritarian state and a pseudo-emergency imposed in the nation. It isn't quite what is produced in the hegemonic narrative of feminism at that stage that we could learn from. In fact, it's resistances to the state that we should be thinking about. Hmm. Um, I definitely agree and uphold all the other panelists, but just would briefly want to add that, uh, of course, it is rethinking past, but paying attention to specific particularities. So um, of an example that I can think of recently, uh, we have a huge ongoing movement around Me Too in India, and while this list came out and the issue was uh, brought up in 2017, however, with the emergence of the Me Too by mostly upper caste feminists in 2018 was seen as the pivotal moment, really not looking at what had led to the emergence of this activism around sexual harassment and sexual violence. And I think though paying attention to those sort of discourses is part of how, um, is a rethinking of how we write and how we present our stories. So I think. I mean, that question of narrative and storytelling, archives, representation, that also came out very strongly from the two of yours and yes. also Avatars, which I think is interesting because it, it indicates as well that questions of generation aren't um, simply empirical facts, but also, um, also ways of telling stories about the past. Well, I think at this point, thank you very much, panel. I'm going to throw it open to questions from the audience. Can I just check? Uh, are there microphones up at the top? I've just noticed there's an audience at the top. Questions <laughs> yeah. Right. But well, I'll I'll keep my eyes open to see if if that uh, if, if hands go up there. But basically, um, if you could just put your hands up if you want to ask a question, we have roving mics and um, open, to, open to you for uh, questions. Um, okay, who wants to start? Uh, yes, over there. Hi. Hi. Hello. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your talks. I was wondering, you... Um, talked about the distinctions in second wave feminism between radical and liberal and those kinds of things. And I often hear people compare third wave feminism to liberal feminism. How fair do you think that comparison is? Sorry, could you say that again? Um, I often hear people compare third wave feminism to liberal feminism and the second wave feminist movement. How fair do you think that comparison is? No, I'm not comparing third wave feminism to liberal feminism as such. What I'm saying is that, you know, sometimes feminisms, particularly the second wave feminism, was talked about in terms of people like radical feminism and socialist feminism and liberal feminism. There were three categories that tend to be used to describe different groupings of people's politics, so to speak, you know. Uh, third wave feminism is, is itself very complex. Uh, I don't think we can, they are characterized sometimes, you know, in neoliberal kind of ways, but that doesn't mean that all forms of third wave feminism fall into that category. Uh, and so I would actually want to hold 
onto the heterogeneity of these political formations, because I see them as political formations, and they are not sort of, you know, singular, and they are multiple um, features to them which we need to address. Any, any other thoughts on this? I mean, I, I presume it's, it's particularly the kind of the notion about the, um, the individualism that is uh, attributed to third-wave feminism that is uh, uh, the basis for that. Um, yes, a question down here. Um, I was wondering if with Actually, this... Can I, can I just... Uh, I should have said this to you first. Can I just ask you to say who you are? Oh, okay. Um, my name is Maria. Um, I was wondering with this whole Me Too movement, if we're seeing uh, a, a new emergence of a new generation of feminism, and if so, if it's this kind of transnational feminism and the implications of it, because I am assuming that the Me Too movement, I'm not sure, I don't know, that's why I'm asking, uh, in India, for example, is completely or quite different from the feminist, from the Me Too movement in the Western world and the implications of trying to make it very similar and how it works and basically that. Okay, thank you. So who wants to start with that? Uh, well, there were, there, there were certain similarities in terms of how it originated, but at the same time, I think uh, it, it's operating and moving and functioning now in particular ways. So, of course, it remains deeply contested, and a lot has been written about that on, on the ways that um, accusations or allegations come out and what happens around that, the politics of all of that. But at the same time, I think what it's emphasized on is the lack of uh, discourses or the recourse uh, which exists so that, you know, survivors can take um, you know, it, it can work for their own means and for their own support. So I think it's brought out a discussion on uh, paying attention to survivors' testimonies at the same time, uh, making all those channels really robust on how we can make the system function better. So I think those, of course, they remain particular in how they've operated in India and otherwise. Sorry, just to, yeah. to quickly add, I suppose... Um, in addition entirely um, to what Niharika says, some of the other um, difficult questions that they've opened up are, as you hinted, to the questions of access, um, to who firstly is included within sort of professionalized spaces um, and has access to even the language of sexual harassment um, that is implicit in Me Too, when a vast majority of the female Indian labor force is entirely casualized. Um, so aside from the vocabulary and some of the infrastructural constraints, there's also the reality that, again, it was Dalit, Pahujan, and Adivasi communities and Muslim communities um, who have long been the victims of these um, of baseless allegations which then result in carceral moves from the state. So when you have the productions of a politics of lists, of anonymous naming of perpetrators, um, who is likely to be more vulnerable um, to a strong clampdown, especially by the carceral machinery of the state within um, a paradigm that is um, in any way sort of justifying um, a faceless uh, form of accusation? Thank you. I'm Marcia. Just hold it closer to your... Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. 
to sing into it. It's like I've never done this before. Um, uh, sorry, I'm Marsha Henry. I'm here from LSE. Um, I, I'm not sure how questiony this is. Maybe more comment or stimulation for uh, um, response. But what I have noticed in particular debates around feminism more recently, and that can be tracked, I think, very much, very heavily in, in social media forums, is what I, I guess what I would see as a kind of weaponization of generation, especially in relation to um, trans-inclusive feminists and gender theorists and scholars versus um, gender-critical scholars, so, um, and very much generation has been thrown out, you know, as part of, well, this is what we fought for all these years, these are the categories we fought under, and so if you want to throw those out, then, then this is the way forward, or if you want to be on our side. So there's, there's definitely a, a whole series, I think, of ways in which generation has been, I think, weaponized in these arguments, and, um, and I so that's the kind of negative sort of story, but I also do see a very positive and more inspiring form of invoking generation, and that's in a social media campaign which is called Cite Black Women um, or Cite Black Women Scholars. So, and and that seems to me about not a kind of or originary sort of let's go back to the past and and nostalgic about it. It's about sort of recognizing the continual erasures that you have been talking mm-hmm. about. And that seems to me to invoke generation in a much more implicit or subtle way, or more sensitive way. Um, and, but, I, but I, you know, it, it definitely meets a lot of resistance in a lot of uh, forums, especially if you think about that in relation to syllabi. There has been a, you know, a quite considered um, resistance from um, IR departments, um, political science departments, saying that you cannot rig syllabi according to these generational type criteria. So I just was wondering if people wanted to comment on any of those things. So any thoughts, comments? You go I guess uh, just thinking about the weaponization uh, metaphor, I mean, if it's a metaphor, um, I think that that's, I think that the sense that um, something belongs to one generation and not another tends to be cited um, at the point that you want it to belong to someone else or only to you. So um, a tactic of saying that something is generational, if it's different or if it's something that you're claiming, is usually about marking out the boundaries of somebody else failing to reach your expectations um, or somebody else somehow not recognizing the legacy that you've left. Right. And so in a weird way, I suppose part of what that then does is it, to go back to Avatar's distinction between generation and, and age, is it is it um, it tends to collapse the two into one another, right? Um, because it tends to be a way of saying um, 
uh, either, well, young people are now interested in this thing that I can't possibly be expected to understand, uh, or that I'm not responsible for, or uh, you're not listening to me anymore, and that's because you're disrespectful, uh, you know, um, and don't understand the things that we've done to shape, uh, you know, let's say, a category of, of woman in, you know, our own image, whoever we are in that moment. And of course, in doing that, not only does it generate um, what I would argue are often false boundaries, but it also claims a kind of um, hierarchy of value in the same moment, right? So if you make those kinds of claims, you're not saying that each claim is equal <laughs> in, in general, nor are you looking at those arguments as things that are themselves the inheritance. So, of course, arguments about who's included in the category woman uh, have been taking place as long as the question of the category woman, right? So that's really not new, nor is it resolved. It may take a, a particular form right now in ways that also have newness within it, but in making that somehow something that could be understood as resolved by one set of people, usually that will mean that, that, that that's about um, imagining uh, political um, truth to be in your own image, right? Um, that's just on Thanks. that one. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Any, any other thoughts from the panel? Right. Uh, yes, uh, at the back there in the green. Hi, uh, I'm Tilly and I'm still at school. And I was wondering why you think the study of the generation of feminism is important and then what implications Actually, could you, you think could this you could speak have. up a bit on having... Okay, um, yeah. I was wondering why you think the study of the generation of feminism is important and then what implications the study of it could have for the future. Is important? Yeah. Is, is. is. Yeah. <laughs> why is the study of a generation important? I mean, we've heard all the reasons why it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> why is it nonetheless important? <laughs> yes. I think as, as uh, um, I said earlier on, I think generation is important because over a historical period of time, it's about actually paying, as um, Claire just said, it's paying attention to the past. So when we look at, and the present and the future, to look at the interlinks between those. And when we are actually thinking about those, then there are changes that happen over periods of time. And therefore, in that sense, to look at what happens over generations as well as age groups is important because that creates the specificity of our experiences, specificities of what, how we struggle, what the key issues emerge in a certain period which then get transformed or change or new issues arise. And therefore, generations do matter in that sense of looking at uh, what the differences are over different periods of time. Um, just to sort of repeat a bit of what I said earlier, I think within the post-colonial condition, part of why it might be important to produce generational narratives um, is in order to displace the Western originary narrative, um, in order to contest the idea that this is a necessarily foreign, alien um, uh, imposition within the post-colonial context. It is important to retain a strong sense of, of history of legacy within um, anti-imperial and other forms of struggle, which can take a generational amongst other sort of historical um, form. And just to briefly 
add to what Priya said. It's also like we're at the moment in India wherein there's a lot of rethinking of how Indian feminisms have been framed from a Dalit and Adivasi perspective. So I think uh, when people from the margin are now rewriting how feminisms have always been exclusionary for their identities, I think it's important to then look at how this has not just happened now, like it's a process, and to emphasize on the process bit of it, we do need to look at how it's played out historically as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Hi, thank you so much for everything so far. Um, uh, my question is, um, Kind of about like, um, so Claire mentioned uh, how there's extra work to sort of gender studies, like, you know, have, like when you're speaking to people at dinners and stuff like that. Um, and um, I was thinking about sort of um, generational framings in relation to that. And um, one phrase that I'm sure we've all heard a lot is sort of, he's a man of his time. Um, and uh, things like that that sort of remove accountability from a, from a person. Um, and I wondered, um, when you come up against phrases like this, um, what, what way do you explain it to people about how that generational form of thinking to kind of take away accountability is in itself um, a, a difficult and bad framing? Thanks. Interesting. That's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, oh, dinners are terrible, obviously. Uh, the, <laughs> Let's have fewer of them. Let's have fewer yes. dinners. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one of the ways in which I've experienced that uh, within feminism, um, which isn't necessarily exactly what you're asking, but it just made me think of this, um, is I think there's a real, um, there's a tendency, I think, to kind of characterize as generation uh, what are often, in fact, age-based differences, but also to nevertheless stereotype people by, you know, particular ages or and generations. So I'm thinking here of, within feminism, the age-old trope um, of um, among older, whatever that means, uh, feminists, about younger feminists, that they've never quite got it right, right? That somehow... Well, isn't that true? Isn't that true? Exactly. <laughs> and particularly through the kind of characterization, um, the, the phrase that's often used is, oh, you know, young people will say, I'm not a feminist, but, and that's only apolitical, and that couldn't be understood in a range of ways and so on, or that somehow sexualization of culture is something that only impacts young people and that they don't resist, uh, or a kind of depoliticization of the young uh, is um, endemic. So there's quite a lot of talk, I think, around kind of, oh, you know, uh, around depoliticization, a bit less now, but certainly 10 years ago, that would have been more prevalent. Um, and I think partly that's about kind of protecting oneself in ways that we need to be very wary of, right, as though depoliticization were not, in fact, a characteristic of most of us most of the time. You know, or the acceptance of, you know, uh, sexual norms uh, and beauty norms were not something that, you know, almost everyone participates in, that somehow that's only understood as something that other people do <laughs> and do and do wrong. So I think there's a there's a kind of casualness around assuming that, that that's car when that's thought to be carried by generation, that it's often pejorative. Right. So. I don't know exactly how you counter that, except by maybe claiming the ways in which things that are usually attributed to others are in fact often much more broadly true. I don't know if you've got any other ideas. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good evening. Uh, my name is Reem Asilan. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Winchester. Um, my question is, goes back to um, actually your comment about closed boundaries. And uh, it made me think actually what I've heard so far this evening is um, still, in my opinion, uh, operating within closed boundaries. In terms of speaking about generations and different, you know, uh, waves of feminism, um, black feminism, white feminism, Indian feminism, and all of that is understandable. But my question is, where do you see feminism today um, uh, in, in the debate around cross-boundary um, and identities and cross-borders identities, especially in light of uh, waves of immigrations and uh, forced displacement and conflict. Where, where do you see uh, feminism positioning, uh, the, the, the movement positioning itself um, amongst all of uh, what's happening you know, nowadays in this regard? Thank you. Do you mean... Uh uh, are, are you talking? Uh, can you say a little bit more? I mean, do you mean uh, in relation to the migrations taking yes. place and the refugees and yes, exactly. So, 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 how, uh, do you mean does um, I mean do does you, feminism have anything to offer that context? Is not that what only you mean? To no. offer, it's rather to to understand and to explore. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Um, different how feminism can be shaped by yes. the concept of cross-border you know and cross-boundaries identities yes. that are um, affected by forced displacement uh, conflict immigrations yes. etc yes yes no I mean a uh, number of us you know for a, for a very long time not just now but for a long time we've been thinking about questions of boundaries and difference and how we think about, how we theorize, but also politically work on differences. And we are obviously now faced by a particular historical moment when we, we've got a situation where, you know, people are having to, the inequalities in the world are such that people are having to leave their homes and kind of basically risking their lives to get to these countries here. Uh, and. And in, and in that sort of a context, we've got to kind of think of feminism itself in a very complex kind of ways, because the kinds of feminism that we might have in a, in a, in a different sort of situation where the situation is not one of life and death, then how you approach those questions are important. But we have to then talk about feminism within the context of feminism. We're actually looking at the whole thing about a social formation, what's happening in society itself, so that we have to then analyze those kinds of, and which is why I said, first of all, that it is about our politics. So it depends on really how you actually look at the global social relations uh, in the world to be able to make sense of, of uh, what, is, what, what you are saying, and then you take particular kinds of positions. I'm not sure what you mean by closed borders. Um, 
borders are closed in the sense of obviously to people who are coming here in that sense i can understand but borders can also be a way of opening up in terms of our mental and psychic borders it's it's, it's also opening up and looking at questions in a, in a more sort of uh, uh, difficult but um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the word uh, in, in ways that actually kind of look at, the, I, I would say, the kind of global relations, the social relations of the globe, uh, what transnational feminism that, that obviously tries to do. So, mm. do you want to? Well, I would just say, I, I think contemporarily and historically, feminism has always looked at questions of borders, but also has to. You know, that any feminism that doesn't consider questions of borders of all the kinds that Avatar is saying, you know, m m makes itself either irrelevant or, or resistant to those questions as though they weren't um, absolutely crucial for what it means to live in the world today. Mm. Hi, uh, I'm Ilana. I'm in my last year of secondary school, and I was wondering um, the extent to which you believe that generation, generational and wave theory feminism has perpetuated the anti-feminist movement. Mm -hmm. Last question. Mm -hmm. So, with some similarity to your weaponizing uh, yeah. question, yeah. Mm -hmm. Who wants to have a go on this? <laughs> I'm bound to ask, can you just say a little bit more what you mean? lot um, how are you I think it's, it goes back to this idea that feminism has to sort of make um, tangible progress um, and we're often asked you know oh what um, with the first and second wave you see that clear progress has been made but then what you're doing now isn't doesn't seem to be um, as great as what has happened in the past and uh. I think, think I feel like that has sort of that's become quite prominent I was wondering if you thought that's due to this whole wave theory and this idea that there has to be clear progress over time um, and kind of on that if you think because it could, could we be, is there a chance that we could ever go back, you know, go back in the sense of perhaps uh, if it's not teleological, then um, it, could, it might not be progress, but going back, I don't, just in general, I'm quite curious to see what you think about that. Mm. You're all so polite with one another. None of you will yes. leap forward and speak. You <laughs> all kind of offer the yes. chance to yes. the others. Yes. Somebody's got to speak. Yes. Um, okay, if I could quickly start. I think, um, of course, anti-feminist movements also take very different forms in different parts of the world, um, in different parts of the world. And I suppose that, again, um, to the context that we're speaking to, a lot of the anti-feminist discourse comes from um, a sort of uh, neo-nativist idea that this, this doesn't belong here, and that the women question, um, as it is formulated within feminisms, um, has no relevance to the construction of the post-colonial na nation state. Um, and I think that within that, there are the same problems that you bring up of 
um, of progress narratives and the idea that the nation has come this far without the serious incorporation of those questions is one particular narrative. Or secondly, um, that, that those incorporations are now complete. Um, and that, you know, after we've had these 60 years of development um, and women inclusion programs in these particular ways, there is an irrelevance to um, a new generation of feminists. Um, and I think that, again, the resistance to that must come from a careful historical reconstruction of A, the fact that there is a place for feminism, there always has been in India, and what that might look like in the future. But again, mm. as, as Niharika brings up, that there are multiple questions of progress. Um, what sort of progress... At, you know, for whose benefit and at whose cost. And I think particularly the women's movement in India, the metropolitan elite, upper caste, upper class women's movement in India um, has decidedly produced uh, various forms of epistemic and material exclusions and erasures of, of um, other polities of, of Dalit, Bahujan mm-hmm. um, and Muslim entities. And, and so I think that part of it is also to recognize that while a lot of Dalit, Bahujan struggles actually actively disavow the title feminist, um, and, and so could be labeled as anti-feminist, they have very different ideologies of arriving at that mm-hmm. uh, oppositional position. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess perhaps engaging in those careful reconstructions of where these uh, antagonisms come from, what they might imply, um, and what they're resisting mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I think that that question of problematizing progress is really important, and I'm really pleased that you raised it. Um, Partly because if you think things have been dealt with, um, then there's that weird sort of moment of shock uh, uh, that happens when, in fact, it turns out that, that, that neither have they, in fact, been dealt with. And, indeed, they're coming back, you know, uh, to bite you in the ass in an even stronger form, right? And one can't afford to be hanging about being surprised. Uh, and so there's a, there's a way in which, actually, you know... Um, I think something like Julia Kristeva's understanding of women's time for all its problems is quite helpful in terms of thinking about um, political time as cyclical, right? So that it's not that things don't uh, in some way shift. It's more that the, you know, it's, if you were thinking of it in common parlance of a kind of uh, methodology, methodology of same shit, different day, Right. The different day part matters, uh, and that will inflect what kind of shit you're dealing with. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Claire, for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, over there, please. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Nona Buckley Irvin. Uh, I was wondering if you thought that there was a growing intergenerational divide within feminism, um, also along political lines, because I find with my generation there's a lot around representation, um, sexual harassment, sort of more traditionally liberal issues. And I also work for a trade union that represents one million women who tend to be older and in working class jobs, where austerity has really affected them. And for them, these sorts of issues aren't really discussed um, within the trade union movement. So I just thought, wanted to know whether you thought that that was a sort of growing issue, a growing thing, and if it is, is that a problem for feminism or is it just a great thing that women of all ages are campaigning on different issues? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I would say that it's, it's, a, it's a positive thing that we're all having to face those. To me, that's not just a generational thing. It's... Those kinds of issues that you're raising are very, very important for all of us to address. 
And uh, it's not just that it's the younger generation that is examining those. Older generations have also to look at them. But these issues that we were talking about, things we think we have been dealt with, every issue takes different forms in a different historical period. And, and therefore, we're having to look at the changes that are taking place. But at the same time, those changes don't mean that the issues themselves are no longer important. So to me, I think that a lot of the issues that were raised by the first or the second or the third or the different waves that we talk about, they're all concerns that, depending on which particular political perspective we have or the kinds of concerns we have, we have to address them from those standpoints. Any other thoughts on that? I think we're getting close to uh, a final question. So uh, would anyone like to put up their hand for the final question? Oh, there's one up in the corner, Anne. Up in the corner, up uh, up at the top. Right. (laughs) So there there isn't a mic up there. Yeah, she's just going, oh, sorry, there's there's the stairs, of course. The mic is is approaching you. Someone's coming up with a mic. Just hold on. Oh, doesn't what you could just shout. Yeah. Well, it's very hard to hear down up there what's going on down there. Yeah.
you know, one directional understanding of feminism. And I think there is immense scope and immense work an excellent work being done in all of those spaces, especially like uh, with regard to how um, a lot of Dalit Bahujan and Adivasi feminists especially have reclaimed internet as a feminist space of the internet providing them with a certain, uh, as a platform, as a democratic platform where with all of its obviously uh, uh, problematics, uh, but at the same time it's become a space wherein they are rewriting constantly all the erasures that have been performed on their bodies, on their communities, and I think that, that is exactly what I see as the possibilities of all, all of these discourses coming, coming together towards uh, not an integration, but at the same time, like, understanding feminism as a site of constant contestations as well as, like, further progress. I don't know if I've answered you, but yeah. <laughs> oh, just to, to quickly add, um, I think exactly as you pointed out, there are, uh, there's tremendous work being done by various women across India who don't necessarily identify with or respond to the appellation of feminist. And I guess then um, the, the difficulty of producing archives is to be able mm -hmm. to attend to these movements, moments as feminist or something in that category. Um, and I perhaps you know, think of the language of vernacular feminisms, of other ways, of other, different sorts of linguistic entry points um, to picking up what this might be and what the work is, especially when so much of it is defined explicitly in opposition to mainstream, you know, metropolitan, liberal um, Indian feminism, which is a lot more comfortable donning that term. Um, and, and I think that, that that is a very real problem in curating the archive of, mm. of what it is to struggle against patriarchy um, and all of its um, sort of implicated structures in the Indian context. Mm. Well, thank you very much. And I think we have to uh, draw this to a close now. I'm sort of, so, yeah. <laughs>